We're continuing in our sermon series today called A Beautiful Mess, walking through the stories of Genesis and the families in the book of Genesis. And so today we're going to be in Genesis 22. But before we get there, let me just ask you a question. Does anybody in here use uh, Yelp? All right, a few of you. I, I like to use Yelp. It's, uh, if you don't know, uh, what Yelp is, is it's a website that allows customers to give reviews of like a business or a restaurant. And so the customers will give them a rating from one to five, and sometimes they'll uh, provide some comments as well. Uh, so from time to time, I, I read these, and I find them to be quite helpful. For example, here's an example from a, a Burger King uh, nearby in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, this particular Yelper named uh, Richard said, uh, four stars, reliable and friendly, not incompetent like those idiots at the McDonald's down the road. <laughs> so that's good to know there, Richard. Uh, recently, I also uh, found one about a courtyard Marriott over in Ohio, and uh, that's when William F. gave it one star because he said, uh, walls are paper thin, morning wake-up call doesn't work, TV doesn't work, shower doesn't have the correct labels for hot and cold, alarm clock doesn't work, lots of minor things, I only stayed here two nights for work, worst hotel I've ever stayed in. All right, so steer clear of that particular uh, courtyard Marriott. Uh, did you know that you can actually go on Yelp and find reviews for churches? Uh, well... I did, and um, I did find one. This church will remain nameless, but let me just read to you uh, their particular Yelp review. Uh, Solomon uh, gave this church one star, and uh, his commentary was simply this, got bored quick. Uh, worship is not great, and message was too monotone and screamy for me. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Solomon. Try not to be too screamy today, I guess. Thanks, man. Now, how important are these types of things? Well, According to a 2016 study, statistics show that 88% of us trust online reviews as much as we do a personal recommendation, which is pretty amazing. Now, the, the principle here behind this website is that we trust the reviewer uh, so that we can see whether or not we want to trust the company. Does that make sense? Now, I want you to think about this sermon series for a moment, and we're in the middle of the life of Abraham. And we left off last week in chapter 21. And if you were to give Abraham's faith in God a Yelp rating from one to five stars, how many stars would you give Abraham? Well, I would assert this morning that although we call him the father of faith, up until this point, I would give his faith some pretty low reviews. In fact, if there were some Yelpers back then, maybe these reviews would sound a little bit like this. Take a look at this one. One star. In the beginning, Abraham verbally placed his trust in God, so that's something. But it has declined sharply ever since. He was told to leave his family behind, but still took Lot as a backup plan. Not impressed. It's a good point. Or how about this particular review? One star. Abraham's, quote, faith has been inconsistent at best. At the first sign of trouble in the land, bam, he's out of there, fleeing to Egypt. And then, passing off his wife as his sister because he was afraid of Pharaoh... What a fiasco. And how about this last one? Abraham's collaboration with his maidservant Hagar to have a child out of wedlock was IMHO, which is, in my humble opinion, a complete disaster. He seems pretty insecure about not having a kid. His, quote, faith, if you can even call it that, is at best partial. I give him one star. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, uh, let me ask you a question. If you were to give your faith in God a Yelp review, how would you rate yourself this morning? Uh, maybe you're here today and you're, you're feeling like your faith is doing pretty well. And so maybe you give yourself five stars. And, and if that's the case, then great, we rejoice with you. 
Or maybe you're here today and uh, it's, it's more like a three-star kind of rating. Your faith has been wavering a little bit lately. Or maybe you're here today and uh, you're like barely hanging on and you'd give yourself one star. Uh, things are so out of whack, you're not even sure where your faith is. If so, I want you to listen to this message today because it's just for you. Uh, Genesis chapter 22 is a very famous story, and it's always dangerous for preachers to dive into such a well-known text, Uh, but as they say, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, right? So Genesis chapter 22 uh, contains the greatest test of faith that any human being has ever or could ever experience in the whole Bible, and really the test is just a one-question test from God himself, and the question is this, how important am I to you? This is a test that we're going to look on, but we're not going to look at it as passive audience members. We're going to use this story to gauge our own level of faith in God, because this test will really evaluate the priority that God has in our hearts and in our lives. How important am I to you? Good question. You're going to see three parts to the message today. We're going to see the ultimate test, the ultimate issue, and the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate test, the ultimate issue, and then the ultimate sacrifice. Before we dive in, let's pray. Oh God, we pause before you because uh, we are desperate uh, for your help. We are asking you to increase our measure of faith and increase our affections for your son, Jesus. And so I pray that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears, and most of all, open up our hearts. Show us the way and show us the beauty of Jesus Christ. May he be lifted up in Jesus' mighty name, I pray. Amen. Uh, Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1 begins this way. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now, the after these things being referred to here are all of the events that have occurred in the life of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Genesis chapter 21 at this point. The events that we just spoke about in the beginning of this message, where his faith was, let's face it, at best partial. After those things, God tested Abraham. Now, the word test here means to determine the quality of something, and it's often used of God who tests his people and tests their faith. I emphasize that because sometimes we think if we're in the middle of a test, then it can't be from God. But that's not true. Uh, Your faith will not spare you from being tested. Uh, The health and wealth gospel that says, if I just had enough faith, then I'll never have tests in life, is just not true. It's a total lie. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, it teaches instead, like here, our faith as followers of God will indeed be tested. We'll face trials and sicknesses and And tests, sometimes even in our own families, and sometimes those times will be the hardest to trust God. After all, it's easy to trust God when things are going my way. The real measure of my faith is how am I doing when I'm tested? And some of you, perhaps, you're facing a test right now, maybe a test in your family. Maybe you just found out one of your grandchildren has walked away from the Lord, and and you're devastated to hear about that. Or maybe you're here today, and you say, well, my child was born with a disability, and and I just feel so alone and abandoned by God. Or maybe you're hearing you say, well, my wife and I had another miscarriage, and, and we just feel so devastated at this trial. 
It seems like our greatest tests of faith in life involve our families, don't they? This one is no exception. Look at verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now remember, God had waited many, I mean, Abraham had waited many, many years for, for God to give him Isaac to be born. Why would the Lord ask him to destroy with his own hand the very blessing that God himself had so clearly promised and then so clearly, definitively provided? How does this make any sense? Doesn't God know how much he loved him? Well, the answer to that is found in the language in this verse. Did you notice how God phrases it? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one whom you love. God is really pushing it there, isn't he? Alan Ross, a commentator on Genesis, says, quote, with each description, the commandment would have become more and more painful. It's excruciating, isn't it? One of the most influential Christian women of the 20th century was Elizabeth Elliot, who lost her husband on the mission field. Uh, commenting on this particular chapter in Genesis, she said, if the story of Abraham tells us anything... It tells us that sometimes God, who is trying to save us, will feel to us like he is also trying to kill us at times. Now, skeptics will look at this story in the Bible and they will say, you see, this is the problem with the Bible. It's barbaric. What is going on here? Your God is asking one of his servants to sacrifice his son? I mean, somebody call Child Protective Services right away. What kind of God would ask this? This is the reason why your religion is so destructive. This is the reason. It's so regressive. Uh, but to think about it that way is to completely miss the point of this story. If you study cultural anthropology at all, you know that almost all ancient cultures were familiar with child sacrifice, from the Sumerians to the Incans uh, to the Mayans. This whole phenomenon is not unique to the Bible or the people of Israel at all. What's unique to the Bible and the people of Israel is what the God of Abraham is about to do in this story. And to miss that is to absolutely miss the revolutionary message this text is teaching us. Now, literally speaking, what we have here is a bracket. The very first words that Abraham heard from the Lord were the words, go to the land, back in Genesis chapter 12, the land I will show you. Remember that? Here, God uses those same exact words as he tells him, now go to the land again. Now, it's one thing at the very beginning of Abraham's life, and back in chapter 12, to ask Abraham to leave his past. But now, he's asking him to sacrifice his future. Now think about that. What, would I be willing to, to give up my future dreams and hopes and plans and my legacy for, for God as a sacrifice if he were to ask me something like this? What is most valuable here to me? What is most valuable in Abraham's life? Uh, to answer that question, let me just invite you to notice one word on the screen. It is the word love. Uh, this is the very first time the word love is used in the Bible. The word, uh, the Hebrew word here is the word ahava. Uh, in fact, let's say that together just for fun. Ready? Ahava. Good. Uh, it means to love, to, to have great affection for or great loyalty to someone or something. It's used only a couple times in the book of Genesis. Interestingly, every single time it's used of a kind of a misplaced, dysfunctional kind of love. Like in Genesis 25, it says, Isaac loved Esau more than his brother Jacob. 
It's used again in Genesis 37 where it says, and Jacob loved Joseph more than his brothers. And so this love here in the book of Genesis, though it can be a wonderful thing, also seems to be quite disordered at times. And listen, this is what creates dysfunction in our families. It's when our loves are disordered and they get out of whack. And sometimes we reprioritize our lives in such a way that our families get prioritized over our love for God. And that's not good. This is what causes the dysfunction, the disordered loves. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 10. He said, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see, that's ultimately what this test is about. It's a test about Abraham's deepest love, which brings us to the second movement, the, the ultimate issue. See, most commentators will agree that this passage is really dealing with the subject of idolatry, the idolatry of the family. Now, as soon as I say that, I know right away you think, well, how could that even be possible? Uh, You know, Our families can become our idols. I mean, how is that even a a, a possibility? Remember, what is an idol? An idol is anything in my life that's more important to me than God. An idol is anything that has a more fundamental place in my heart than God. In other words, my idols are those things that I look to to give me my sense of self-worth. My idols give me my significance. My idols are where I turn for comfort. and, And my idols give me my sense of security. And this can happen with many things, right? It could be my my job or my GPA or my education or my my paycheck or food or substance or drugs or anything else I put my trust in or some hobby that just kind of obsesses my life and takes up so much of my time. And yes, it can even happen with the family. You see, family is a blessing and family is a good thing. and And I love my family, but family can also become an idol. In fact, it's really quite common. Kevin DeYoung says, the idolatry of the family may be the most acceptable sin in conservative churches. You say, well, okay, what would that look like exactly? Russell Moore says in his book, The Storm-Tossed Family, quote, I will often find husbands or wives, for instance, who are resentful of their spouses because they're expecting a soulmate who can meet every expectation of their entire lives. That's a ruinous path. Because then that person moves from soulmate to soulmate to soulmate to person to person to person, uh, never really finding what they want. Then he says this, Christians must realize that family is important, but not preeminent. God never designed marriage to meet all of my needs. God is the one who meets all of my needs. It's not going to happen through my marriage. It's going to happen through my relationship with God. Or sometimes when I talk to singles who are dating, who choose to live together before they get married, and I have to have this hard conversation, it's really awkward, and what they usually say is, well, you know, Pastor Dave, I want to be sure, you know, that this is the right thing, I want to try it on, you know, I go to the shoe store and try on my sneakers before I wear them, so I want to make sure this is okay, and I want to make sure that the person I'm marrying is able to meet my needs, and what they don't realize that they're saying is that they're not only sinning because God designed intimacy to be in marriage alone, but they are placing a weight on their marriage that will not only lead to disappointment, but it will set them up for failure. See, this is why the statistics about cohabitation are so terrible when it comes to a divorce. They're viewing marriage with a consumer mentality rather than a covenant mentality, and ultimately they are setting their marriage up to buckle under the weight that it cannot bear. 
How about children? Can children become our idols? Absolutely, yes. This is what we see today with so many child-centered homes. Parents who are afraid to say no to young children. Parents who are afraid to have hard conversations with older children and share with them God's truth. Parents with young kids who, who are so overbooked with their kids' activities every single night, every single weekend. Uh, Kevin DeYoung says, we do not have a patriarchy in this country or a matriarchy in this country. We have a kindergarchy in this country. Children are running this country. Our schedules are dictated by our kids. Now, nothing wrong with a few good activities, but parents, we do our children a great disservice if we love them in such a way that makes them think they're more important to us than God. Our kids are not more important to us than God. They are not the center. God is. I remember one of our kids used to play soccer, and in second grade, all the other dads would come to the games, and, and, and this particular dad would, would just spend the whole game running up and down the sidelines, yelling at his kid, yelling at the coach, yelling at the refs, yelling at everybody, and I'm, every single game for the whole season, I'm like, man, is this really about your kid, or is this kind of more about you, and what kind of reflection this kid is on you? Have you met this dad at the soccer game? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? Russell Moore says, I've seen many homes where parents have pinned all their sense of future on their children as being successes in the world or as valedictorians of their class, which also leads to disappointment on the part of the parents and resentment on the part of the children. See, if I expect my kids to just be an extension of myself, so that my children are living out their lives so that I can talk about them in my Christmas newsletter. That I'm going to expect my children to bear a weight they were not designed to bear. Amen. I'll tell you a true story. Two women, both married, both of their sons were kind of going off the rails. And for the most part, it was kind of the husband's fault. It was the husband's doing. Mother A was able to work through this conflict and was able to come to a place where she forgave her husband and they moved on and it really helped the communication and the family to actually grow closer together. But Mother B, in a very similar situation, was continuously furious, always bitter, always angry, and she would not forgive her husband. Now, why not? See, the difference here is even though the first mother loved her son, the second mother made her parenting and her mothering her greatest sense of meaning in life. And so a well-adjusted son gave her life purpose. As a result, she could never forgive anyone who stood in the way of her idol. And so things got worse and worse and worse in that family. And ironically, by loving her son that way, she destroyed him. See, if your son is not just your son, if he's your everything, well, then that creates a problem. Kevin DeYoung says, the biblical view of the family is that it's good, necessary, foundational, but not ultimate. So please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that family is not important. You will never hear me say that. I love strengthening families. Uh, it is a passion of my life, and I love my family. What I'm saying is there is an order here. And if that gets out of whack, and if somehow... The, my family becomes more important than my relationship with God, then that's going to create a whole lot of dysfunction in my family. That's what I'm trying to say. God is my chief hope, not my child's SAT score. God 
is my chief concern, not my spouse's income. God provides my chief sense of purpose in life, not showing off my family. Families do not define us. God defines us. And only when I get this order right do our families begin to thrive and move from dysfunction to function. So this is the test, I think, that Abraham is facing. Let's continue on in verse 3. It says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. These must have been three really long days. Can you just imagine how difficult this journey was for Abraham all along? He knows the purpose. He knows what's going on, but he can't share what's going on with anyone. He cannot share his deepest fears or his questions or really talk about this with anyone. He is alone going over and over and over again, this commandment in his mind, rearranging this priority that he has in his heart, and somehow he makes it to the end of the journey. Verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they, they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and, and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now this question right here gets me every time. This really cuts to the heart, doesn't it? How would I as a father answer my son here? How would Abraham handle this kind of question? I want you to remember that question of Isaac because I'm going to come back to it later. Let's see how Abraham answers. Verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Amen. So they went, both of them, together. I, I don't quite have the suction cups to, like, understand Abraham's level of faith. Here he is reassuring Isaac that God will provide. And I don't know if you noticed in verse 5, but Abraham also says something like, I and the boy will go and we will return back to you. Where does Abraham get this level of confidence and faith? How does he believe that somehow, some way, God is going to come through here? He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. I know you know the end of the story, but he doesn't know the end of the story. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews actually gives us some insight here. It says in Hebrews eleven nineteen, 19, you should jot that down, that Abraham trusted that God could even raise Isaac from the dead if he had to. In the words of one of my favorite prophets at DTS, uh, Abraham is thinking, if God gave me Isaac from a dead womb, I'll put this on the screen, if God gave me Isaac from a dead womb, then surely he can bring him back from a charred altar. This is a very different man than we've seen in earlier chapters between chapter 12 and chapter 21. Somehow, his faith is no longer wavering. Somehow, this man, Abraham, no longer has a partial faith. Somehow, he has this complete faith in God. How did he get that level of faith? How does anyone get that level of faith? I assert this morning that the answer is found one chapter earlier 
in chapter 21. We actually read this last week if you were here, but I just want you to see the words again because it's very important to understand what happened with Abraham. One chapter ago, it says in chapter 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Do you see what's happened? Look very carefully up there. One chapter ago, Abraham waited his whole life. We, the readers, waited like nine chapters for God to do what was absolutely impossible. And God himself gave his wife, Sarah, in her old age, a son just like he said. Did you notice it indicated that three times in this particular passage? Three times. As God had said, as God had promised, which God had spoken. You see what God is saying? Abraham... Wake up, didn't I do, to you, do for you exactly what I promised I would do for you? Do you see that boy right there? Do you see that son? That's the son I promised to give you. And there he is, live and in the flesh. I am a God who keeps my word to my children. Abraham learned that lesson right here in chapter 21, and I believe at this point in his life, you couldn't put anything in between him and his full trust and faith in the living God. Here's what you gotta know. For Abraham, this is not something he read in a book. There was no Bible at this point. This is experiential knowledge that Abraham had because he waited and waited and waited and God himself showed up in a way that no one could argue with. Those of you who've seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know that God provides because you have experienced the Lord, your provider, in your own life. This is Abraham. Nobody can talk him out of the fact that God keeps his promises. He has seen him do it. Do you have that kind of faith in God? I think Abraham finally does, and for the first time ever. There's no backup plan. He's just there relying on our prayer-keeping, promise keeping, uh, omnipotent, almighty God. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and, and took the knife to slaughter his son. Just pause the movie. This is the scene that every famous painter of the Middle Ages paints, right? Here he is. The scene is all set. It's a moment of silence. Nobody's even breathing. At this moment, what was going through Abraham's mind? And and what was going through Isaac's mind? And what did Isaac see in his father's eyes? Fear? Terror? Tears? Resolve? I know you know the ending of the story, but Abraham did not know the ending of this story, nor did Isaac. And the divine intervention does not come until the other side of his obedience. And that's the way it is with tests, isn't it? I I shared with you this quote from Charles Stanley that is just so marked on my soul. He says this, just obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Just obey God and leave all the consequences to him. And what I I think is so convicting about that quote is there's like this posture inside the quote. And the posture is not, I will obey God after I figure out all the details and I figure out how this is going to work. The posture is, 
Before I figure out exactly how this is all going to work out, I'm still going to obey God, and he will take care of me on the other side of my decision. That's the posture. This is where Abraham is. And sometimes we're faced with this same choice. We're faced with the choice between have faith or make sense. And sometimes those two things both don't exist at the same time. You've got to make a decision. You want to have faith or you want things to make sense? That's where Abraham is. Is there any area in your life where God is asking you to, to choose between have faith and make sense? Is there anything in your life that has become too important? Is there anything you need to turn over to God? Is there anything that's become like the Isaac inside of your own heart? Is there anything in your family that you need to surrender to God? Sometimes I think that's the toughest thing. You know, we say, God, I'll surrender all, but if you call my child to the mission field like the Caspers in a dangerous Middle Eastern country, I'm not too sure I'm ready to, like, surrender to you there. Or maybe... Maybe we just really need to realize our families don't actually belong to us. They are on loan from us. They belong to God, and they are our stewardship for a season. And maybe we need to just release them to do whatever God calls them to do. And man, that's hard. Or maybe you're here and you're single, and, and it's time for you to maybe let go and release the idea that your romantic partner is going to meet every need in your life, and that's become too much of an idol for you. Or, or maybe there's somebody in your family that's, that's too, it's, it's just intimidating for you to have a hard conversation with them because you don't want to jeopardize the relationship, but it's come to prioritize them over your convictions with God, and maybe you need to tell God you'll have that conversation with them because God is first in your heart. I don't know what that means for you, but let me encourage you, when push comes to shove and you have to decide between family or God, and there's like, it's one or the other. Let me encourage you to prioritize God. God says, I want the preference. I want the priority. I want the preeminence, Colossians 1.18b, so that in all things he might have the preeminence. God says, I want to be first. This is Abraham, trusting in God alone. And then after God is sure that Abraham's willing to obey, at the last second, God comes down and stops the whole thing, Eleven. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. It's always a double name calling thing when God has great uh, love for his child, right? Saul, Saul, David to his son, Absalom, Absalom. Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Man, that was a close one. You know, like, it's been said, God is always on time, but he's rarely early. Like, could you bring us a little closer to the edge here, Lord? Sometimes he does that. And God stops him, and here's what God says. God says, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Did you notice something different here in God's description of Isaac? Your son your only son, what's missing? The one you love. A deliberate omission here by God and by the writer of Genesis. Abraham's priorities have been realigned. A line has been drawn. Nothing will come between Abraham and God. 
And that kind of faith honors God. Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, quote, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Here's where we're first introduced to this wonderful name of God, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. And the Bible teaches us that, that from beginning to end, God made a promise to Abraham, and he never had any intention of taking his promise back. He reaffirms his commitment to Abraham after this, and, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation through Isaac, and, and through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed and so for Abraham, he learns, I think, what we need to learn, that there is a great paradox. If Abraham prioritized and preserved his family and disobeyed God here, his family would have likely faded into insignificance. But the paradox is that instead, since he prioritized God, remembering that it was God who gave him his family in the first place, if he surrenders his family into God's hands, then the great paradox is that then God blesses him and his family more than he could ever ask or imagine. God never wanted to take away Isaac from Abraham. God just wanted first place in Abraham's heart. And the same thing is true for me. This is why the scriptures say, I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. That's the test for Abraham. That's the test for me. Now remember, the test was a one-question test. It was this question, how important am I to you? How important was this God to Abraham? Answer, for Abraham so loved God that he was willing to give him his son, his only son, the one whom he loved. Does that sound familiar? Because movement three is going to take us into the future as we look at the ultimate sacrifice. You know, it's so interesting in modern times, if you, if you study the Jewish rabbis and how they read this story in their uh, Torah, when Jewish people hear this story, they identify not with Abraham, but with Isaac. The binding of the Isaac, the binding of the son Isaac here is, is, is where they find their identity. One commentator said, quote, when Israel heard this narrative of Isaac on the altar... It heard the story of its very existence hanging in the balance. See, Isaac's life or death is the heart of the plot. And I think that's actually the right way to read this story. In this story, like Isaac, we too stand condemned because of our sin. We are under the just penalty of God. And like Isaac, we are asking our Heavenly Father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And here we have a shadow of the answer from heaven itself because 2,000 years later on this same exact mountain, Mount Moriah, this is where they would build the city of Jerusalem. And on that day, it was not our love for God that was put to the test. It was God's love for us that was put to the test as God himself is asked by all of humanity, how important are we to you? And if Abraham could have stood at the foot of the cross... He would have said, oh God, my father, now I know how much you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, the one who you love from me. 
Brothers and sisters, the reason why we can know that God loves us, the reason why you can know that God loves you is because he did not withhold his son, his only son, the one whom he loved from you. Do you see his son here? Do you see him carrying the wood up the mountain? Can you see him as the lamb all stuck with thorns there in the thicket? Do you see why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, along with him, graciously give us all things? Oh, wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men. You are the one that we praise. You are the one we adore. You give the healing and grace our hearts always hunger for. And friends, when our hearts, our hungry hearts, are satisfied in Him, we will have no problem putting God first. We will have no problem putting God at the center. And everything else, including our, our, our families, will be brought into a proper alignment because our affections are deepest with him. And we'll no longer need our families as a source of our significance or our security. Instead, we will look to him alone. And this is the way I face my greatest tests. It's not by saying God will not allow difficult things into my life. Because he may. Look at Abraham. Uh, look at our friends, the Caspers. The way we face our biggest fears surrounding our families is not by saying that God won't allow those things to happen. It's by saying God may allow those things to happen. But the worst thing that could ever happen to me has already happened to me. You see, the worst thing that could ever happen to me is not a family member or my spouse passing away or losing a child or or my spouse forgetting my name due to dementia. No, the worst thing that could ever happen to me is me being separated from my creator under the judgment of God. And if I know Jesus Christ as my savior, then that will never happen to me because it's already happened to him in my place. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, for this reason we can say with the hymn writer, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Let me encourage you to ground your identities not in your children or in your families, but in your Savior. To ground your identity, to, to ground your deepest satisfaction, not in your husband or in your wife, but in God. To, to, to find your ultimate hope and, and your lasting legacy, not in your children or grandchildren, but being in the family of God. Uh, Russell Moore says, family is a blessing, yes, but family is only a blessing if family is not first. God is. And here we learn this lesson. There is a great secret and a great paradox. If we will take this posture, this will not weaken our families one bit. If we will take this posture, then and only then will we be free to love our families perhaps more than we ever have before. Let me invite the worship team forward for one more song. And as they do, let me close with the words of a poem. I don't normally write poems, so lower your expectations. But I did give this a try yesterday, and I'll share it with you.
When God called me, I answered and rose from my bed. Good morning, my Lord. What is it? I said. I want you to bring me an offering today. I'll gather my best. I hear what you say. First, hear what I ask for, and then I will wait, for I want you to bring me something so great. I want you to bring me your heart and your life, your dreams, your family, your kids, and your wife. I dropped to my knees and said through the tears, but now you are bringing to pass all my fears. Where will I turn? On whom shall I lean? And God said, my child, it's time to be weaned. I want you to bring me what you love the most. Then Christ will be all. In him you will boast. And soon you will find after this transaction, your heart and your soul will find satisfaction. Sufficient is he to meet every need. On bread that is life, your spirit will feed. You'll drink living water that I will provide. And in my great love, you will learn to abide. And then you will find, to your surprise, your heart will not shrink but grow in size. For then you'll have my love surging in you, which I gave you first, then you'll give to them too. For I have the drink that quenches your thirst, but you must remember to love me first. And Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that before we ever loved you, you sent your son as a great demonstration of your love for us. We thank you that we have this precious cornerstone. We thank you that we have this firm foundation. And we thank you for the blessings that are our families and how deeply we love them today, oh God. But help us to know that the way to love them best is to always love you first. And so I pray that you would make us into a church full of strong families with you at the very center of our homes as we turn our attention and glorify you and as we worship together with this song. May you hear this as our heart cry to you this morning, putting you first and in your proper place and help us to bring into alignment everything else in our universe. We ask this for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen. Can we stand together?